Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of England in the Age of Austen, talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about Jane Austen and the social and political world she inhabited. Professor Black, we're talking about Jane Austen's England and uh, we're looking at it from two perspectives. One is the perspective that Jane Austen herself had, the England she knew and understood or felt she understood. And the second is the historian's perspective of England in the age of Jane Austen. Uh, Jane Austen herself, I mean, it's perhaps useful to have a little bit of biographical background to her. Uh, her. Her knowledge of England, let alone Britain, first-hand knowledge, was quite limited. Yes, though I wouldn't hold that against her. I mean, after all, um, uh, George III never went further north than Worcestershire, um, you know, never visited, for example, such remote places as York or uh, Norwich or Nottingham or Derby, uh, let alone Edinburgh or, or Cardiff. So, uh, uh, you know, and George II and George I saw even less of England. So I wouldn't hold that against her. And she had... Um, she spent her entire life uh, in England. She comes obviously from the south of England, rural um, uh, rural England, and um, from a clerical background. Uh, but she does travel a bit. I mean, obviously, she lives part of her life in Bath. She travels to um, uh, you know to London, for example. She travels to Kent. Um, she visits the South Coast. Um, and obviously, she also reads the newspapers and corresponds with people, which is another way in which people acquire information about the country. I think it's fair to say that, uh, and of course, highly ironic now, because you and I are speaking during the age of COVID, I think, you know, our assumption was that people just tore around the country and went to meetings and conferences and all the rest of it. Actually, um, uh, given what most people in this country have done in the last year, uh, Jane Austen didn't do too badly. I think that's true. She was, so she was, um, she was born in Hampshire uh, in 1775, just coming up to uh, tumultuous events for the British Empire. Um, how much of that would she have known? I mean, there, there was a family friend who was Warren Hastings, so uh, there was certainly a degree of political worldliness in her, uh, in her wider social circle. Oh, yes. I mean, very much so. I mean, one can take this in several different ways. I mean, first of all, in terms of the immediate family, and more particularly in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. Um, she has two brothers who make a career in the Navy, uh, both with some considerable distinction, and I discuss these careers in my book. Um, she has, of course, um, another brother who um, serves in the army. Um, but I think it's fair to say that she would have been familiar from the word go uh, insofar as she reached sort of maturity because people would have sat around discussing the newspapers that was very much the case in that period and the clergy which was her family background were probably the best educated group in the country um, 
I mean, in those days, whereas now standards in Oxford and Cambridge have balefully collapsed, in those days there was some rigour in the education there. Um, you're Scottish, I think, uh, Graham. Nowadays, I suspect <laughs> people would say that would say that it's we've gone back to the 18th century and thinking that many of the greatest universities are, are north of the border. Um, but you know, they would also have had uh, the newspapers, and she would have discussed the newspapers and heard adults talking about them. So I don't think there's any reason to believe that she wasn't quite aware. And as you probably know, and again, you know, I, I do discuss this. I find it one of her most interesting books, but then of course I am a historian. As a child, she wrote a history of England, which was very interesting and which showed that she was quite familiar, not just with the facts of the history, but also with the different interpretations. And she very much adopted a Tory interpretation and was very again the Whigs, um, but she did understand things. And of course, they, uh, she was clearly very familiar with Oliver Goldsmith's history of England. Um, and um, I think it's fair to say that in her family background there were there was non-juring sympathies. The the non-juring clergy were Church of England clergy who had been unhappy about the Glorious Revolution, and um, one of her most distinguished uh, clerical relatives uh, earlier in the century had been Master of Balliol College, Oxford, and had had that uh, viewpoint um, and so that she had a as it were a view of both history and politics which you could describe I mean I would describe as a Tory view and one of the reasons I wrote my book is that I'm interested in trying to recover the reputation of major literary figures whom so often have been in my view um interpreted in a sort of modish or partisan fashion, which tells you more about what is politically judged correct or appropriate today. So I wrote the book uh, on Shakespeare in which I very much tried, and I think the uh, the Journal of British Studies Review puts it quite well, that uh, you know I tried to present the period of Shakespeare's life as, as they put it, strange, uh, which of course it is if you have the presuppositions of you know modern modishness, but uh, the same with Jane Austen. Rather than people imagining that Jane Austen is some sort of figure in a chick-lit um, uh, sort of uh, writing about sort of proto-romantic women who are keen to express themselves, it's worth thinking about what it was what, what it was like to have a strong sense of devotion um, and a strong sense of duty. Uh, both of which was true of Jane Austen. It's worth bearing in mind that her publications included uh, prayers that she had written. I mean, she was a devout uh, woman and the suggestion that has been recently made um, by a sort of rather trivial television personality um, about her sex life is completely ridiculous. There's no support from it in, in uh, her correspondence or in her writings. And of course, it's sort of totally at variance with um, her, you know, her, 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 her set of beliefs. Well, you, you spoke a moment ago about her having a, a Tory vision. 
do you think that Tory vision came from the fact that her father was an Anglican rector? So it's a Tory vision seen through the, the sense of, you know, the church in danger, or at any rate, the importance of the supremacy of, of the Church of England and all things. Or is there a Tory vision which is wider than that and goes into uh, a political viewpoint which is not purely confined to the the rights and responsibilities of, of the church. Yes, I would say both of those. I mean, I would say that her her principal approach is a moral one. And I think it is the moral position which encompasses what we call politics, and we tend to treat that as a separate proposition. I think that reflects very much a modern viewpoint. I don't think that's very helpful for the 18th century. So I think that there is a moral position which encompasses what we call politics, what we call society, what we call devotion. Um, so there are, there are moral ways to go about being devout. You mustn't do it in a way that draws attention to yourself. So to uh, if you had been an 18th century religious person, you would regard a lot of modern uh, religiosity as ludicrously self-indulgent, you know, people talking about discovering God, or, you know, it's not actually up to them to discover God uh, in, in 18th century terms. That's the kind of thing you, ex in the 18th century, you thought was to do with um, naive, uh, heterodox, and often heter heretical enthusiasts. Um, so I think that you could say that one of the factors that, uh, that brings her novels into this is, you know, most people, when they think about the church in her novels, think about um, the ridiculous Mr. Collins. Uh, but in fact, as you will know, I mean, there's one other cleric that acts in an inappropriate fashion. But as you know, most of the clergy are actually sort of very proper people and and in some cases, rather heroic people, uh, you know. And um, the, the two, I would have said, um, sort of uh, professions that emerge with great most uh, most appropriately are the the um, the church and the army uh, Colonel Brandon I think in particular um, so I would say that there is a sense of appropriate behavior and of course one of the ways in and of moral morality one of the ways in which I'm afraid that conservatism Toryism is misconstrued and has been so brilliantly misconstrued by its opponents is by arguing that it's a opportunity for sectional interest and it, uh, more particularly of, of self-interest based on money, whether income or capital. This is not what Jane Austen is about. And in fact, um, for most conservative moralists, the rich are not necessarily good in inverted commas. Um, you can see the same thing, as you may know, I've got a book forthcoming on uh, Agatha Christie uh, and another one on, um, on uh, Conan Doyle. Now, they're different. Um, the, the, the comparison very clearly um, with Jane, between Jane Austen and Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie is also, of course, a very devout figure. Um, and the she believes in the real presence of evil, uh, that it's not an abstract uh, idea or something that sits in your conscience, that it has a real presence. Um, and uh, she writes her stories accordingly. 
and also her politics. I mean, as you will not be surprised to hear, when the BBC came to do um, the day, not the BBC, I think it was the ITV, came to do the D David Suchet stories, they left out uh, Hastings's remark that uh, Poirot is no socialist. I mean, there is, you know, there, there is no lack of clarity. But the interesting thing with Agatha Christie, it, and the same thing with, of course, uh, the uh, Conan Doyle stories, is that the rich are not necessarily benign. Um, so that this kind of idea that you have of conservatism being a class interest is not really is not really founded. Now, uh, there are differences, we could discuss these in a separate programme between um, the ecclesiology and the, and the related political uh, mentality and morality uh, of, uh, of Doyle and of Christie. And I think um, one needs to really think about those quite hard. But if we go back to Austin, I think ecclesiology explains quite a lot about her novels. I mean, there are other things. There's also, you know, they're good fun. And I tried in my book to communicate the fun. I mean, I mean, in many senses, uh, Northanger Abbey is an absolute scream. I mean, you know, it has a very unattractive character in it. It has the usual group of humbugs that you see in Jane Austen novels, but also the account, brilliant uh, satire on the most successful novelist of Jane Austen's time, successful in terms of commercial sales, which is um, Anna Radcliffe, you know, the, the queen of the neo-Gothics. Uh, it is very, very, very funny. Now, you do need to read those stories in, in order to understand that it is funny, um, just as in order to, uh, to, uh, to appreciate some of Jane Austen's work and the humour of it, you need to read the novels of sensibility. And as you know, if you've looked at my book, I have got a chapter called The Rise of the Novel, in which I try and look at other novelists, because in order to understand where Jane Austen is coming from in her writing, in the tone she adopts, and in the humour and difference that contemporaries would have seen in it, you need to look at the other novelists. You know, it's not as though people just sat there and read some course, let's read the, court, the novels of Jane Austen, um, which, which is one of the great problems that, uh, that, that um, and the other great problem is, is uh, the, the films and the television. In fact, um, my daughter uh, was telling me that when she did English A-level and there was a set text of um, Jane Austen and the teacher sent them a... Uh, um, sort of an essay to do over the weekend and on the Monday asked them a question and every single pupil got it wrong because it had uh, uh, it was clear that what they had done is in, in all, instead of reading the novel they had watched the relevant film and actually there was something in the film that wasn't in the novel and you know, <laughs> this is this is of course you know I brought the that element out in in when I was writing about Shakespeare, and it's even more the case uh, with Christie. Um, but in the case of Jane Austen, you can have a lot of innocent fun if you want, 
um, dwelling on the differences between them. But what I would say is the principal difference is that the films do not capture the morality or mentality of Austin and that she is expressing. And that is because they do not appreciate the centrality of a religious-based um, moral set of code, which codes, which was so important to that period. Well, uh, she is writing, of course, Jane Austen is writing uh, in the early years of the 19th century at a time when the evangelical movement is taking off in the, the Church of England. Uh, what do we know about her attitude towards that? It doesn't come out um, sympathetically in, in her novels. No, I think that's very true. And you're right to say there are uh, people who are coming forward as evangelicals, but it's also right to say that this was not true of the majority of the clergy, still less of their uh, congregations. And that in some respects, um, if you wanted to look at her religious politics, um, she is in some respects like most um, Anglican mainstreamers critical of the nonconformists in the late 18th century, critical in particular of Unitarians, because Unitarians, of whom Priestley is uh, the most famous, I suppose, were associated with both religious and political radicalism. Now, the evangelicals are, in some respect, a lesser threat at that period. Um, their tone comes more to the fore in the uh, 19th century. But I would say that in the 1800s, um, you could live your life quite happily in Hampshire without coming across too many evangelicals. Well, I want to just take a, a step back and talk about her education. Um, you said something in your introductory remarks about the, the, the family milieu um, and what she would have learned from that. How about her education? She has a, a she and her sister has a, a, a tutor and then goes to a, a boarding school. Um, how typical would that be for the the daughters of the clergy in the in the last quarter of the eighteenth century? Well, fairly typical, but also um, very typical is the way in which her initial education is a matter of being brought up in the family household. And I would say a clerical household is one in which, for daughters, both the father and the mother are significant. And the father, of course, uh, has an unusual position because he is also uh, the priest in the parish. So, um, you know, in most cases, he would uh, baptize and confirm uh, and so on. Uh, and be responsible for the religious catechism of the of the child. So I would say, I mean, you know, standard thing, um, you, you get sent away to be weaned, you come home, you're one of a number of children. There is an argument that to a degree uh, you could suggest uh, that there was a degree of neglect. I personally think that that, again, is not one which is terribly helpful if one's looking at the standard pattern of childhood in that period. Um, and 
Um, she goes away. There is the, then again the standard problems of ill health, infection, um, which I talk about. Um, particular problem in Hampshire, because in Hampshire with the port at Portsmouth, um, infectious diseases come in. Portsmouth is the major port for the East India Company, sorry, the major, a major port uh, with London for the East India Company. A good book on that by a chap called Thomas. And what that does is spread a number of, um, has a number of consequences uh, around the county, but one is the spread of infectious disease. Um, the major form of education she doesn't then have is, of course, the experience of running a household herself because she doesn't marry, she doesn't then um, uh, acquire the, um, the, the knowledge, the expectations, the, comp the, the difficulties, if you like, of defining herself both vis-a-vis -vis a husband, vis-a-vis -vis servants, vis-a-vis in-laws, um, and that, but that is more of a social education than a, than a, as it were, education about the world. And in many respects, through not getting married, she has more time to read, more time to correspond, and probably therefore more time to be aware of the world in which she is. And she clearly enjoyed reading novels. Um, you know, there's a extensive literature at working out references in her novels and, and shows, you know, she was widely read. Uh, this is an age of subscription and circulating libraries. It was easier to acquire books or to read books without having to purchase them. Um, and I think it's fair to say that if you read her novels, um, partly she is writing about her own experience, but partly she is also writing about a world in which she has a familiarity through a pretty good command of the literature of the period. And um, her schooling, how would that have uh, equipped her? So what, what would uh, a, a young lady's education have actually in, involved beyond you know, learning to read and write? Well, um, as with anybody in that period being educated, in fact, I would say probably to contemporaries, the most important education was um, scripture. I think that was very important. Uh, a certain amount of, um, uh, of mathematics, that was important. Um, depending upon the school you were at and the aspirations of your parents, um, you might have some formal education in music, but you would generally learn music, singing and playing a instrument in the domestic context. And there is a lot of evidence that there was a high level of mus musicality in the Austin household, as well as a lot of amateur theatricals. Um, so your education is both formal and informal. And I think that the informal network of education for Jane Austen was rather impressive. Um, her family kept up with its clerical connections, they visited, um, and 
through and by and of course you know one of her brothers was in effect adopted out of the family through well to another branch of this family through that means uh, and and through those uh, mechanisms i would say she became a uh, an educated and impressive young woman of the period uh, i mean it's ironical if you think about it that um we often um sort of praise formal education processes but uh, as you may know I've done a biography of George III and George III who of course didn't go to university no, no more obviously than Jane Austen could have done there weren't any women at university was again a very well educated man um, education fundamentally rested uh, I would say on a keenness to read and an openness to developments in the world around you. And I think both of those characters had those in spades. Whereas what you often found is that people that went through formal mechanisms, and um, you know, accounts of the major public schools of the period and the two major public schools were Eton and Westminster, make it clear that although there was um, there were some good teachers. There was also a fair amount of sort of roistering, drunkenness, um, just, you know, a sign, a kind of, you know, school riots were fairly common. Um, and the, the actual formal mechanisms of encouraging young to adopt interests were very variable. You spoke um, a few moments ago about the fact that Jane Austen not being married gave her time to read and uh, develop her, her thinking. Um, I mean, she died very young at the age of 41, but nevertheless, um, most uh, women who were going to get married would have got married long before 41. How unusual was it in that uh, period of Regency England uh, for women of her class not to get married? Oh, a large number of people were married, both men and um, women. And I think it's also fair to say that the extent of uh, extramarital or premarital um, um, sex was lower than, than people would argue is the case today. Um, so it's not just they didn't get married, they didn't have um, relationships. I mean, I'm, obviously there was prostitution, not, not, I'm not, you know, not, uh, and again, if you look at my Britain in the 18th century, I discuss these elements in some detail. Um, but Jane Austen is not an unusual case. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that um, her age of death is, well, unusual is going too far, not common. I mean, as you may know, people um, discuss um, average life expectancy, but average life expectancy, and it often seems a relatively low figure, but that's because so many people die in the first six months, and then if they haven't died in that in the first six years, and then if they haven't died in that, they've died by the time they're 20. If you reached 20, your chance of going on to your late 50s was pretty good. Uh, the major disadvantages in the meantime being for a woman childbirth and for a man, if you went in either 
to forms of work that were hazardous, fishing, for example, many fishermen drowned, sea fishermen, or if you went into the military. So Jane Austen was unlucky, and you might have anticipated an unmarried woman of reasonable fitness who was able to escape infectious disease and particularly didn't live in London. London was a sump of ill health, lasting longer than she did. Uh, how, you know, counterfactuals are interesting, of course. Had she lasted for longer, it's interesting to think what work she would have produced. I mean, obviously there are unfinished works that we know about. I mean, you know, recently there was a, a hilariously inaccurate account of Sanditon on the television. Uh, so there are unfinished works. What I'm thinking about here are more what might have happened, what Jane Austen might have written about if she'd been writing, um, you know, in 1820 or 1825. Um, and the answer is, I obviously I don't know. She didn't, and she didn't like. She didn't produce some prospectus plan of this is what my you know eighth or tenth or twelfth novel is going to be on. Um, but certainly, her um, she started writing very young. Doesn't mean that she started publishing young. That's a different question. And as you may know, her juvenilia are quite interesting, some of them quite lurid. I, I discuss those in my book and, you know, for example, there's killing and that sort of thing in the juvenilia, which are, is not, are not the themes in the adult novels. So she clearly had a fertile imagination. Um, but, you know, clearly, although she started writing young, you're talking about a career of essentially three decades of writing. A shorter period of publication. Um, now, how does that compare with other writers? I mean, it doesn't compare necessarily badly if you're looking at her compared to, say, Virginia Woolf, for example. I mean, it's obviously a diachronic comparison, a comparison with somebody in a very different period. But also, if you're looking at her, say, with comparison with Anna Ratcliffe. And so although the common theme with Jane Austen is how long, how young she died, if instead you were to think about the, um, the period of time in which female novelists wrote over, she doesn't appear as atypical from that point of view. I mean, I didn't discuss that in my book because you just can't write about everything in a book and you have to be selective. And what I wanted to focus on were the different questions about the influence of the England of the period on Jane Austen's work and also on what Jane Austen's work, what light it throws on the England of the period, which is not quite the same question. So what you have to therefore do is quite tightly discipline yourself. I mean, I, I would like to think that what I have is full of interest for Jane Austen specialists and enthusiasts, but I couldn't simply sit, sit around producing a, a table, for example, showing you how her writing period compares and contrasts. But again, it's not just women. I mean, you can think the same, for example, of men. If you're looking at some of the greatest 18th century male novelists, um, Henry Fielding, for example, uh, they're writing about over a comparatively uh, short period. So what that does is um, create more interesting questions about the development of style and substance. 
uh, and tone, of course. So there is the argument, uh, the argument, you know, obviously I discussed it with, with other scholars, and there is the argument that yes, Jane Austen was very conservative in her earlier days. I mean, you know, it's difficult to look at her history and not think of her in that light, um, but that she becomes less so later on. I'm not sure I'm convinced about that. And, you know, the, the, um, the for example, mention of, um, of uh, slavery is very, very brief, and it doesn't produce an extensive, an extended uh, account of how of the iniquities of, of it. Um, she doesn't, you know, she mentions briefly enclosure, again, without um, producing any account of the uh, iniquities of it. I mean, Jane Austen is not Mary Wollstonecroft. And um, I think there is a somewhat of a tendency, I, I you know, I write, wrote about that in my Shakespeare book. I think there is sometimes of a tendency of people to push um, some of what could be interpreted um, in as critical um, of existing arrangements and to push that beyond the nature of morality towards a more explicit political, political uh, vision and agenda. And I would argue that that is mistaken if you're looking at Jane Austen. And I'm, I'm a bit disturbed about that. I mean, I don't know if you've read the book, but if you look at the last chapter, I mean, I move on from uh, the chapter on the romantic landscape in which I am looking at Jane Austen's later sections. But, you know, in the, in the very long concluding chapter, I am trying to consider this issue of Englishness and Jane Austen. And that Englishness, I think, is rather a, an interesting um, point of view. Now, I quote David Markham um, and others who have, um, you know, suggested that there is a kind of reactionary quality to Jane Austen. I don't think it's either reactionary or non-reactionary. I don't think a Tory is a reactionary. I think a Tory is somebody who's often got a profoundly moral sense of the values of continuity and the values of existing arrangements. That's not reactionary. Uh, that is actually asking for people to consider matters in moral terms. Um, and I think that that is where I would locate Austin quite uh, significantly. I also think another element of that is the cultural approach to nationalism, you know, where in Mansfield Park, um, it, with the reading aloud of Shakespeare, for example, which I think is, I think, you know, uh, you know, I've, I can quote you here. Um, uh, Henry Crawford says, Shake, um, one gets acquainted with without knowing how. It is part of an Englishman's constitution. His thoughts and beauties are so spread abroad that one touches them everywhere. Uh, one is intimate with him by instinct. Um, and, you know, th this notion of um, cultural reference points in the landscape and in the literature, which Jane Austen is using. Um, clearly, she isn't writing against them. So she's not a radical, uh, nor is she uh, writing in a critical way about them. But what she is understanding is their value um, in creating a society in which you have a set of uh, codes in which pettiness, 
selfishness um, can be understood to be wrong. I think that's quite important. So as I, um, as I grasp it, for Austin, one of the points of morality is not just to help the soul move towards salvation, uh, but it is also to help the individual on earth to move towards a redemptive nature of behaving towards other people. Um, and that requires the difficulty of understanding themselves and then trying to be good to others. And in the novels, there are these processes of trying to understand yourself. In some cases, that's a quite hilarious uh, a process. Emma is a classic example of that, um, but also of trying to be to do good to others. And obviously, as you know, famously, when when Emma is nasty about the unfortunate woman in the um, in the village, um, she is reproached for that, and she has to understand that she has done wrong and that she can do better. So morality is not a question of, as um, you know, of, of uh, and Jane Austen isn't a question of some sort of reactionary uh, class interest. It's a question about actually an encompassing conservatism of a moral code. And I think it works very well in those novels. And I think that there is a practical Anglicanism which comes across very clearly in people like Tilney. I mean, you know, I think that that is, that is, whereas of course, you know, the general Tilney is awful uh, because he is somebody whom is uh, uh, self-interested, you know, what's it, I mean, I think, isn't there some phrase, as I said, I wrote the book a little while ago and I read the novels a little while ago, but isn't there some, that he'd never been so happy as when he addresses his daughter as countess, some sort of phrase. Now that is Jane Austen really hitting hard. You are invited to understand, you are invited to think this is wrong, you are invited to mock the pretension of it, all at the same time. And that crosses a, um, a way, uh, so I was about to say crosses across, horrible phrase, that any attempt to present it in explicit political uh, terms. Well, I'd, I'd like to bridge from that onto uh, status, class, social standing, other themes that, that Austen deals with. Um, can you, uh, she's primarily writing about what we might call the gentry class, which isn't the aristocracy, there are aristocrats come and go, but it's primarily the, the gentry class. And I wonder if you can just unpick that, particularly for listeners beyond um, the British Isles, about the, the distinction between that and aristoc aristocracy while still the predominance of land as a source of, of family revenue and, and value? Well, gosh. <laughs> well, they could read my book because I've tried to go, all my um, Britain in the 18th century, I go into the structure of society and its ethos quite in detail. Let's start off. Uh, aristocracy is only a relatively small uh, number of people. George III expands the uh, size of the aristocracy. The best book on that is John Cannon's Aristocratic Century. Um, but we're still talking about roughly 160 families there, and that's only a small group. Um, so um, the, the social, uh, local social position 
and wealth of those who are landowners who are not aristocrats is often the same. And in practical terms, there could be a number of reasons, including your family being Catholic, uh, why it hadn't moved up the aristocratic uh, uh, sort of structure, but why you were still comfortably off. In fact, uh, relatively few Tories got preferred under George I or George II. George III changed that. Um, but could I slightly expand on what she was saying. You're right that she does have gentry families in the novels and that they are very important and that they provide significant settings like Mansfield Park. But um, a large number of the characters are not landowners. Um, uh, the clerics, for example, I mean, we're not, there's no clerical equivalent of um, the well, a contemporary of Jane Austen's who she would have heard talk of, uh, which is the Earl Bishop of Derry, you know, an Earl, uh, the fourth uh, Bishop, sorry, the fourth Earl of, of, um, um, uh, of Bristol, who was also a Bishop and in fact built that superb stately home which is in the possession of the National Trust at Ickworth outside Bury St Edmunds with its very interesting rotunda and, and curved wings. So she's not dealing with the clergy at that level or at the level of great, you know, level of bishops and archbishops. So the clergy on the whole she deals with are not landowners, they may have uh, wealth in tithes, which obviously is linked to land, but they are not particularly affluent and they are in a way dependents and obviously egregiously so uh, with the ghastly Collins. Um, but there are other figures that she presents, like Mr. Martin, for example, who are, um, you know, they might own a little bit of land or they might be managers or they might be tenant farmers, but they are, as I would say, the level below the gentry. And one of the important elements of English society is that there are not these rigid divides and practices of intermarriage between social groups, particularly between land and money, are practices of in which second or third um, sons and so on have to make their own way uh, mean that you've got a broader based social group and you get an example of that in uh, Darcy's cousin uh, Colonel Fitzwilliam who explains to Miss Bennett uh, that you know he would not be <laughs> the nature of him as an as a matrimonial choice would be that he needs to get some money he needs to marry uh, into capital and I think it's fair to say that Jane Austen, if you want to call her being subversive, you could say she follows actually the standard trope in 18th century novels, you can see this most famously in Pamela, um, in which people um, are able to marry, whether it's Pamela or Elizabeth Bennet, Pamela of course is a servant, just to remind people, or Elizabeth Bennet, who comes from a modest background, are able to marry um, very successfully um, because love, sentiment, uh, sensibility trumps commercial interests. 
Now, that is a standard romantic theme in tales. That is not something that was dependent upon the origins of the novel, but it is something that was very common in the novel in the 18th century. And in, in many respects, and here I, you know, obviously there you will find that there are some critics who take a different viewpoint, which of course is absolutely fine. Uh, but I see very much see Jane Austen as an 18th century figure and an 18th century novelist. Um, she was born as you, you know, her formative years were an education and early reading were all in the 18th century. Um, and I think that her style of novel writing is very different to what you are going to see with, for example, the Brontes. And I'm not convinced. I mean, there was a recent film, I remember, of Pride and Prejudice, in which Elizabeth stands on a scarp in the in the uh, Peak District with the wind blowing her all over the place and looking like, um, you know, some romantic heroine. Well, yes, but not Pride and Prejudice. You know, it just, I mean, I, you know, they got it wrong. But actually what was interesting is it probably spoke more to what the uh, modern critics would like and the modern audiences would like than the much more subtle dialogue nuanced nature of Austin's very careful plotting of meetings, of conversations, um, which give and which gives you itself the greater drama without the drama having to be played out in the these very you know grandly inappropriate late romantic or romantic settings and with the gestures accordingly can i pick up on something interesting you, you were saying earlier uh, about um, about um class and status and, and land ownership um and the fluidity of, of the land market, uh, the property market at, at that time. Um, when we speak of um, you know, commercial money buying into land, is that often, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that the younger sons of land who've gone into trade and made money and then bought themselves back into land? Or if, for example, I'd been a draper in the late 18th century, I'd done very well. I'd opened a number of drapers stores and then I, I had sufficient funds from that to you know, buy a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a reasonable kind of gentry size house uh, somewhere in the countryside with some land. Would, would I have been accepted into, into, into that county society by doing that? Or would there, would there still have been a, a market division? Right, fascinating. Um, well, first of all, county attitudes would possibly have, have varied. I mean, there was the book by Lawrence Stone in which they compared, from what I remember, I mean, I read this book 30 plus years ago, but it's Northumberland, Northamptonshire, and I think the third county is Middlesex. And clearly, um, the further you go from London, generally, you get a greater degree of conservatism, okay? Um, but your actual question about where does the money, you can make your money through the law, through medicine, through commerce, 
Um, you can make your money through military service. You can make your money through the Navy. And of course, you can see those in the, um, in the Austin books. You can see uh, Mr. Elton's family, you know, you know, so, um, from Bristol. Um, um, Colonel Brandon has done well in, in India. You know, you can see there's a number of different ways in which, I mean, Colonel Brandon's already a member of the, uh, of the uh, elite. You can see a number of ways in which money um, is made. Those people making that money, some of them could indeed be younger sons of, or client or collateral branch, cadet or collateral branches of, of major landed families or just landed families, but others of people came from different backgrounds and you get the English elite is relatively an open elite um, and you get into it um, people who um, I mean you use the term draper surely I mean my memory is going going as I get a bit older but wasn't Edward Gibbon's father a draper um, you know I think that uh, that you you know there are there are a lot of ways in to the system and in to fame and interestingly enough I mentioned George III opening up the aristocracy and as you know I've done two biographies of the king one of the reasons is that his, his view is very different to George I and George II. George I and George II, have a, who were both born Hanoverians, you know, G1 in 1660, G2, um, uh, you know, comes along in 1683. Um, these men are have a German attitude, which is sort of blood right, gives you aristocracy, and they're very uneasy about the idea of creating new aristocrats. They do it a little bit, but very little. G3 has a very different view. Um, aristocratic status is a matter of, and he hates a lot of the established aristocrats, families like the Cavendishes and the Russells, um, who he thinks of as lazy and stupid, uh, spoiled and the people that have led his son astray. Uh, what he likes is much more people who have, um, as it were, who are creditable, who have done well, who deserve therefore well of the king. Um, and he makes his friends accordingly, Bishop Hurd of Worcester or Henry Addington, for example. These are people who in the king's eyes, or, or Edward Thurlow, the lawyer, these are people in the king's eyes deserve um, status. Um, and I think that's reflective of a more general viewpoint because if you look at the great uh, 18th century English innovations of cultural organization, of which I would suppose the Freemasonic uh, order becomes orders because it splits, uh, is possibly one of the most important, but also the ideas of gentlemen's clubs, the ideas of um, social circles in kind of uh, assembly rooms, which of course Jane Austen writes about quite extensively, particularly in the Bath context. The whole idea is, and Jane Austen captures this with in fact Darcy behaving badly, you will recall, the whole idea is that you should treat anybody who is a member there as of equal status. So that was the notion of a Freemasonic Lodge, that was the notion of an assembly room, 
that was the notion if you were presented in Bath, you know, that as it were, you could, uh, that was the notion if you went to the King's Circle, uh, George III would uh, talk to everybody in the King's Circle, easier to talk to a monarch probably then than it was in uh, the late 19th century. Um, and I think that that captures a viewpoint. It doesn't mean everybody's equal, of course they're not. Um, but it does mean that there is a broader base, and this is one of the things that carries Britain through the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, which after all are in the background uh, for Jane Austen's adult life. Britain is at war from 1793 to 1801, um, uh, no, sorry, 1802, uh, 1803 to 1814, and or seeks to encompass all, it doesn't of course encompass all, but it does encompass many. And that is a better base than, um, than the equivalents on the continent. Well, a, a last question, if I may, about Jane Austen as a writer, and particularly the role of publishing houses and women. Um, one um, uh, uh, outlet for, for women has always been the stage, or at least since uh, the, the, uh, it, during the 18th century, the, the, the stage. But um, to what extent were publishing houses forces in which women could express themselves in, in a way which didn't in any way uh, cast doubt on their propriety, their social propriety? You mean in which respect could writing novels be that? I mean, women didn't run the publishing houses. Publishing houses were run by men, uh, but men proved, um, I mean, essentially, they wanted to make money. And writers who um, had the ability, I discussed this throughout the book, writers who have the ability to deliver sales found they could get published. There wasn't really any difficulty in that. Um, and they didn't have to disguise themselves as men. Now, as you may know, um, in newspapers and magazines, the situation was somewhat different in that most articles appear as anonymously or pseudonymously, you know, a friend of his country, a friend of the country, that sort of thing. So there's no indication with most of them who the writer was, and you're not going to read, you know, the uh, latest Graham Stewart, you're going to read um, um, an article which has been published in that particular, you know, in the Gentleman's Magazine, for example. Um, but Jane Austen um, had her difficulties, as you know, uh, but towards the end of her career, she was becoming what was referred to as a literary lion. A lion was a, a term used in the 18th century for celebrity. Um, rather like um, Walter Scott, for of course, um, rather like George Lord Byron. Um, and again, it's interesting to consider what would have happened. As you may know, the Prince Regent, the later George IV, is interested in Austen. Um, 
and she is prevailed upon somewhat unwillingly because he doesn't really <laughs> match her moral code um, to du duly show respect. Uh, and of course, she then dies. Well, you know, he goes on being Prince Regent till 1820, he goes on being George IV till 1830. It's interesting to consider um, and obviously Walter Scott benefits from his patronage. It's interesting to consider what could have happened for Jane Austen uh, under that basis. I mean, it would probably have been a, you know, a payment out of the significant payment out of the privy purse. Um, uh, but uh, which would, would have, you know, for him would have been as easy as anything. Um, so it's interesting to consider, but I wouldn't say she was held back by being a woman. And I would say an aspect, and as I've already mentioned Anna Ratcliffe as one of the most successful, if not the most successful novelist of the 1790s in commercial terms, uh, and other writers who are women in the late 18th century of some success, Hannah Moore, for example. Um, so, you know, you can go on and on and on. Women were successful. Uh, and writing was a particularly appropriate activity for them. Indeed, the tragedy for many women, I would say, is, an, is a profession that was totally shut to them, unless um, you were a member of one or two uh, nonconformist sects, was the church. And probably for most writers, including naturalists like Gilbert White, historians like William Cox, um, actually what kept, what you know what paid the daily you know the daily wage, as it were, was being a cleric. And women lacked that position, and that remained, of course, the case. Well, we must leave it there. Jeremy Black, whose uh, new book *England in the Age of Austen* has recently been published. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And for, you know, listeners, I hope you found that interesting. The Austin one follows with the same publisher, The England in the Age of Shakespeare, and I've tried to do the same. So I think they um, sit well together. Um, but coming out later this year will be both um, Agatha Christie, which is going to be called The Importance of Being Poirot, um, and England in the Age of Sherlock Holmes. So I hope those will be of interest too. We'll look forward to them very much indeed. Jeremy Black, thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.